You are listening to the Wool Academy podcast. This is episode number 78. Hello and welcome. My name is Elizabeth Van Delden and once a week we talk to an industry expert from the wool industry supply chain from farm to fashion and beyond, delivering strategies and insights to be successful in wool and showcasing those beautiful stories wool has to tell. Today's guest is Jimmy Jackson. Jimmy is the founder and head of the International Wool Consulting Group. Jimmy has a lifelong career in the wool industry and his expertise is in the area of chemical processing. What that means is in practical terms that he knows how wool can be mercerized or how wool can be made machine washable. Today, Jimmy will share his experience from working with many wool manufacturing companies around the world, in particular in Asia. Welcome, Jimmy. It's wonderful to be talking to you today. How are you? Thank you, Elizabeth, for the kind introduction. I'm fine. A little bit warm as we experience the warmest spring or autumn in, uh, in Australia. Okay, and we're desperately waiting here in Europe for some warmer weather, so maybe... You can send some over soon. Yeah, <laughs> too warm. Anyhow, <laughs> well, I would like to start our discussion by you telling us more about yourself and the work that you do. Okay. Well, first of all, as you and everybody can tell from the accent, I'm not from Australia. I originate from uh, near to Bradford, where I was born in Yorkshire. Uh, in the days when I was born and growing up, uh, Bradford was a, known as a wool city and uh, became the um, the world's number one processing area in them days. I, I understand it used to process 50% and parade 50% of all the world's wool. And, um, yeah, not just Australian wool, but every type of wool from Falkland Islands, Norway, wherever. So, so it was, there was... Yeah, so Sorry? there was there was no other way for you to end up working in wool? No, it became inevitable because when I walked to school, I saw wool on the streets, which had dropped off wagons, etc. I mean, all my relatives at the time said, don't go into the wool industry, don't go to the mill, blah, 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 and um, I ended up there. In fact, I originally wanted to be a chemist, and I actually got a job uh, with a Swiss company located nearby me making pharmaceuticals, but still ended up in the wool industry. And I don't regret for a moment. <laughs> well, then, yeah, I think since then you have over 45 years of experience of working in the wool industry. <coughs> Tell us a little bit more about your career path. Okay, well, actually, I think it's 48 years now. But anyhow, um, I've had an incredible career. Um, I joined AgWest, which was a Walmart company, back in August 1970. And I was extremely lucky when I joined there. I think it's, you know, the old cliche, right, right place, right time. Uh, the first thing I, I entered uh, in the AgWest, a Walmart company, was uh, the department involved in making wool machine washable. The technology had been developed at laboratory stage in Australia by the CSIRO, And just as I joined, it had been transferred to the uh, Walmart Development Center in Ilkley uh, to transfer it into a commercial uh, process. So we had a big machine. We had a lot of fun for two years. We got gassed a few times to try and make machine, wool machine washable. We eventually got there. And then 
you know, so I was really lucky, right time, right place. But in addition to that, I had, uh, first of all, I had some fantastic mentors, uh, both internally and also externally, because most of my time I didn't actually spend in the office, I actually spent in the manufacturing sector. Uh, first of all, in Bradford, but it wasn't uh, long before the set me at the uh, ripe old age of 17 to work in Roubaix in France uh, to uh, one of the largest companies in the world. Uh, at that time was Kruger Maserell and learned a lot there. Um, so I also had a great opportunity to actually run a lot of machines. Not only we operated the machines, we had a fantastic pilot plant in just about every type of war processing machine in the development center in Ilkley. Also working in the industry, and uh, I can tell you, I, got, I broke a few machines doing trials, and uh, I always remember getting sort of quickly removed from Pringle when I destroyed their new finishing machine, but that's how you learn. Um, I also had the opportunity to start traveling the world to transfer the technology. It was my job to transfer machine washable technology to design plants, set it up around the world. So I went, went all over, first of all, places like uh, Italy, Japan, etc., Australia. Australia came first time uh, maybe 35 years, maybe 40 years ago. And, um, you know, I've had a, had a fantastic career. Eventually, step by step, I, I, I got promoted and... Um, Eventually became a general manager, and that's when I moved to Australia in uh, 2005. I came for four years, but been here for 13. And uh, the other thing, um, you know, also was lucky at that time in the early 70s, the ID West, like many other companies, it was normal to sponsor, if you like, young apprentices for their college education. So I spent four years in Bradford College, part-time. Uh, studying textile chemistry, then I moved to uh, Uddersfield uh, Polytechnic, but I like to call it a university as it's known today. And I uh, there I did a uh, degree in textile technology and surprised myself by getting a two-one honours degree. And uh, eventually, with the help of some key retailers like Max and Spencer's in the UK supporting me, I was awarded a, a fellow of the International Textile Institute (FDI). And uh, over the years, I've probably worked in around 80 countries. Wow. Okay. That's a big number. And yeah, recently you've, you've founded your own company called the International Wool Consulting Group. And tell us a little bit more what you do there. Okay. Um, when, I, when I left the Walmart company, which is nearly two years ago, in uh, end, end of June, I thought, well, first of all, you know, having worked 40, 45, 47 years in the wool industry and working, you cannot just stop, you know. And anybody who's ever played uh, golf with me knows I'm not a golfer. And uh, I don't mind going to this beach, you know, in Sydney, you know, for half an hour once a week uh, with the family. But, um, you know, you just can't stop it. You know, you love the wool industry so much. You love the fiber. You love everything about it. I mean, I've met thousands of people, established thousands of friends. How can you just stop, you know? So I decided to um, start a part-time business called the International Wall Consulting Group. But, you know, I didn't want to work and chase everything. So I decided uh, to work with some key manufacturing companies, uh, which I work with for today, uh, who are manufacturing uh, wool products all 
all these companies, their DNA is wool, and they manufacture in different types of products. So there's no conflict. In fact, they often work together now on product development or supply chain, etc. In addition, I was approached by uh, the largest and most important knitting yarn show, trade show in the world, also to work for them, which they, they call me an ambassador at the start, but I do special projects for them. So really exciting and diverse. And um, as I said, I'm not just chasing any job, even though many, many people contact me today, uh, etc. But, uh, you know, as I say, I try to have this work-life balance. Um, I spend about 12, 14 weeks a year traveling with my family overseas on holiday. I'm still working in the mornings, but as I say, I'm trying to get this balance, which is not the easiest thing in the world. That's true. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge for everyone. And what kind of topics do you help your clients with then? You know, I just got that at today, a previous meeting, the same thing with a, with a very large German retailer. And, um, you know, it's basically what I do help them with. You know, I help them with many, many things because my experience stems from, you know, the time I've been in Australia, I understand, I'm not an expert on wool, but I understand a lot and I know a lot of the wool drawers. I understand, I know one, uh, the exporters and, uh, and brokers. Right the way through the manufacturing pipeline, top makers, spinners, weavers, knitters, etc. And I also have a lot of experience and know a lot of retailers and brands. So I help in, in many ways. So sometimes I help the, uh, the, the people I work with find specialized type of wool. I don't get involved in the weekly options or they can sort that out themselves, but they may, the client ask me to go and source a particular type. Um, I do, of course, a lot of product development with them um, in raw world scouring, in, particularly in chemical processing, machine washability, uh, mercerization, improving quality, more improving consistency of quality, improving yields like that. I also support the uh, sales, sales um, marketing department. You know, when they get technical questions, all the companies I work for have an international network. So when they get technical questions from a customer, you know, I support them on that if they, if they can't quite understand. I also do a lot of technical stroke marketing writing for them. You know, all the four manufacturing companies I work for are all Chinese. And, uh, you know, uh, they won't mind me saying because I tell them, but when they tell me, they send me the English script. Of course, I understand, but I don't understand. I say it's Chinese poetry. It might work in China, but we understand nothing in the West. So I do a lot of writing to present their, their, their products, etc., and technical marketing. I also, I call it my Sunday job, I also develop new business. Of course, I'm based in Australia and close to New Zealand. I visit a lot of the retailers and brands and customers. Uh, but I also uh, traveled a lot around the world and know a lot of uh, retailers and brands um, you know, all over the world. And uh, also, I created an international network, yeah? Um, I've got a great international network. Uh, of course, a lot of old experience, very experienced Walmart staff around the world, but also other staff who will work with in the textile chemical industry, the retail industry, in every type of industry. So if we need help in a particular country or they need help, you know, we communicate together. Um, sometimes we do joint projects together. 
Okay, that's a large portfolio. And thank you for yeah. sharing that. <laughs> and I want to get back to you being uh, and with your expertise in the area of chemical processing of wool. Yeah. Um, and I understand that you actually, without you and your work around the world, we wouldn't be able to wash or wool in the washing machine. But tell us a little bit more yeah. about uh, yeah, chemical processing, yeah. what all that includes. Okay, as I say, uh, first of all, uh, my, my expertise and my first job, and I spent at least 20 years, if not more, traveling the world, designing machine washable plants and uh, commissioning and training staff and setting them up. I think, looking back, I think one of the reasons Elizabeth I was lucky is that um, machine washability is not a passion. Yeah, it's a necessity. Without the uh, without the function of machine washability, you know, the the wool industry would be at least half the size it is today. Because if you think about it, how could we sell wool socks? How could we get into the sports outdoor market? How we could sell many, many knitted products if you couldn't wash them today in a machine washable, uh, sorry, in a machine wash, uh, washing machine. Um, so it's got a longevity, it's not a fashion where some of my colleagues, unfortunately, lost their jobs earlier because they was working perhaps on more great innovations at the time, but they only perhaps last for one or two, five seasons, something like that. So I was really lucky. I also, as I... Um, as I gave my experience, I also, working with a colleague of mine, um, we we developed and invented the mercerization process for wool. Yeah? So explain and, what, that, uh, what that exactly is, mercerization of wool. Yeah, what it is, I mean, we confused everybody at the start. <laughs> in the, of course, mercerization, mercerization is uh, associated with cotton. Um, uh, and also, uh, it was actually invented, mercerization was invented for cotton by uh, a Lancastrian. And being a Yorkshireman, we had to, you know, we had to uh, get even, so we invented one for wool. Now, it actually does essentially the same as it does for cotton, in that it increases the softness and comfort, and also the luster, the gloss. But, of course, it used different, completely different chemicals, because... Cotton cellulosic fiber and wool is a uh, beta keratin, is a protein fiber. Uh, we also had initially a lot of criticism because it, it gives a very silky look, a very, um, and, it's, and the fiber is very slippy. So, you know, I had a, a quite a lot of spinners complaining with ends down, they couldn't spin it, they can't do this, they can't do that, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, you know, it's become a, become a stable now. So, all these like machine washability but also mercerization and other chemical processes in which areas of the industry are these most applied then well um it tends to be more important for native products um we have we have the technology also for making woven products machine washable yeah but it's less important you know as i say It's essential today that most wool knitted products are machine washable. Like I mentioned, if you want to be baby wear or regular sweaters, sports outdoors, certainly, etc., etc. When it comes to wovens, um, we've got the technology, uh, and we do uh, we do help companies develop um, machine washable products, but mainly separate. So 
it's good for, you know, men's and ladies' trousers or ladies' skirts, etc. Even though we got the technology for making machine washable suits, which we've done with Japanese retailers, uh, very few consumers are going to take the chance to throw a suit in a washing machine and, uh, uh, and see what happens, even though we, you know, we could guarantee it. Also, uh, men's suits or ladies' suits as well um, is an ticket item. So, you know, you're paying $1,000 or so for a suit. You don't mind paying, you know, $15 to $20 to have it dry clean. But when it comes to knitwear, you might buy a piece of knitwear for $58. But $5, five or $10 to have it dry clean is also expensive in proportion-wise, in percentage-wise. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, thank you so much for explaining these, um, this about uh, chemical processing. And I also want to talk to you about uh, your experience in manufacturing in Asia. So because you mentioned earlier that most of your clients are actually based in Asia. So I, my first yeah. question is, what fascinates you about women manufacturing in Asia? Well, first of all, I, you know, every area of manufacturing uh, wool manufacturing in um, every geographical area uh, fascinates me, whether it's southern Russia, northern Ireland, wherever. It's just that the last 20, uh, 20 years or so, um, the focus is, uh, in manufacturing has been in, in, in Asia, primarily China, because, um, you know, that's where the growth's been. Uh, as you know, um, 20 years ago, China probably only bought, I can't remember the figures exactly, 5 or 10% of Australian wool, for example, but today they buy about 80%. So definitely the growth area. But I've been working in uh, Asia a long time, and it's very, very interesting sort of follow my career, and I often explain that, you know, the first, the first five years, um, five or ten years, sorry, of my career, from 1970, let's say, to 1980, approximately, I, I lived my working life in five main countries where the manufacturing sector was. So I worked extensively, of course, in UK, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Where did I go to in the early 1980s when the industry started to move? It was two main countries, was South Korea and Taiwan. Then they became too expensive and there was a mega shift of the industry then to China. Which has uh, which has continued ever since. So, um, first of all, the fact that I, um, you know, the last 20 years or so working for Walmart, I spent a life in China, and I first went to China in 1981, uh, very very early, and um, so it's inevitable when when I started my own business that I start working with, uh, particularly in China, because things are happening in China. You know, there's moving to different stages. First of all, you know, it was a cheap manufacturing. Then they went through, uh, I like to call it emulating rather than copying, but they went through a period of emulation. And now they're leading the innovation, you know, in the new strategy led by the government, innovation, the way forward. Every, every company there, whether it's telecommunications, the trains, airplanes, textile industry, has really got this innovation buzz, which is, you know, right where I sit. And where do you see the industry moving after China? So where, what are other well, countries developing? A lot of people, a lot of 
people ask me, I think, first of all, I don't think it'll move quite as quickly as Taiwan and Korea because China's such a, production is such on a mega scale. But of course, it's starting, starting to move already. So it's starting to move to Southeast Asia. We're seeing Chinese companies more investing there. And the sort of new place, you know, they're talking about Ethiopia. Some of the mega Chinese companies have moved to Ethiopia, some to Vietnam. I'm talking to companies today who want me to take them to Murama and uh, adult there. And uh, so it's going to move to, you know, the, the volume textile industry, including the volume wool industry, you know, always one of the first to move, like with the electronics assembly industry or the toy industry, always moves to sort of cheaper countries. There will always be great companies exist like we still got great weavers in Yorkshire. We, you know, we got great weavers and companies in Italy. But, you know, the volume follows, you know, follows the, uh, the price, um, unfortunately or fortunately, but it's just a fact. Yeah. And yeah, because you, you have this experience of having visited and worked with companies in Asia as well as in Europe, can you name a few of the main differences between manufacturing and Yeah, I can. I mean, uh, first of all, we've got to sort of split Asia up a little bit. Of course, Japan and Korea is very, very advanced. Yeah. Um, uh, China's probably 20 years behind, and then we talk about Southeast Asia. If you look at Vietnam, where I spend a lot of time, and uh, they're, 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 they're a little China. They're China of 20 years ago. So I'll talk a bit about China, which, of course, I know the best. I mean, uh, there, there, there is some differences. Um, uh, I've changed a lot. Um, first of all, the, the Chinese companies tend to be a mega scale. You know, on on a real mega scale, you know the um, you know the car packs often bigger than the biggest factory in Europe. Um, a lot, a lot, uh, a lot of uh, attention on innovation. So in terms of uh, terms of production today and quality, certainly the companies that I work with, they can produce as good quality as anybody. Yeah. Of course, they don't have the heritage or branding, etc., like European companies do. And uh, one thing I find they, they are weak on, they, the product's really good. Um, the technology today, they, they sort of jumped over. In many cases, a lot of Western companies, but to be fair, they've got the money to invest in the latest dining equipment and technology, etc. You can't. You know, and you cannot move for uh, European, particularly Italian consultants in China. But the one thing is still very weak. They don't present. They don't present their collection and ideas and innovations in a good way for a Western audience. And that's a lot of work I've been doing. Um, my, whatever they do might work in China. And I always say to people, you know, I've worked for more than 40 years in China. But it's still that I understand about 10%. So there, there is some differences. Okay. And if I were a retail brand, how should I decide if I want to manufacture um, in Europe or maybe in Asia? Well, I mean, I have a lot of experience on the questions they, they asked me, first of all. And um, different, different brands have different rules and regulations. But first things they always ask, of course, they ask... Uh, Can you make the product? Yeah. 
and to what quality can you make it to this, whether it's low max standards or whatever. Of course, he has the price, he has the minimums, yeah, so the minimum orders, they uh, have the lead times, yeah. So that might get them to visit the factories. Then they have to do audits. You know, this varies from uh, this varies from retailer to retailer. You know, uh, some some audits take at least uh, six months, if not a year. You know, to go through the motion. Some of the bigger U.S. companies or the big European companies. You know, they've got this set CSR rules and, and this that and the other. It involves every aspect: training, worker safety, like this and stuff like that. But I mainly get asked the questions, you know, when they're looking for a new supplier, you know, I even get them, you know, persuade them by telling the price indication, the quality indication, the minimum orders and lead times. And then they will decide whether to go off, you know, on a, a trip to explore and which I help them set up, you know, they, they of course, book their own flights and hotels and whatever, but I arrange visits to companies. And even this week, I got a leading Australian brand doing that. Okay, and then another question I would like to address is that um, a lot of European, but also US consumers have some prejudices against manufacturing in Asia, or let's say maybe in particular China. For example, you know, that they have lower environmental regulations or worse working conditions, yeah. minimum wages. And what is your experience in regards of these topics when it comes to wool manufacturing in China? Oh. Are these concerns just okay, okay, Elizabeth. Yeah, this was probably true, I don't know exactly, but let's say a decade or so ago, it was also the way to do business, etc., etc. I think that the people who think that today uh, probably never went to China or maybe went to China for two days and stayed in Shanghai. I mean, China has come on a long way on every aspect, you yeah? um, know, in it, just about every aspect of life. Uh, when I talk about the companies I, I work with, first of all, uh, talking about lower environment regulations, you may recall that in 2015, Uh, China introduced a new strategy, including the textile industry clean up China campaign mm -hmm. by, by President Xi. Yeah. It was introduced in January 2015 and nothing happened, but apparently he signed it in March. And then the Environmental Protection Ministry or Agency of China went into action. They, I don't know how many people they employed, but they had two or three people just about every factory the, the day after taking samples and checking and this, that and the other. If you look at the uh, Chinese uh, new environmental laws, they're equally as tough, if not more tougher than some of the European ones. So that's the first one. Uh, second, working conditions. Well, you won't believe some of the uh, working conditions that the workers now, uh, some of the companies I work with, is like a six-star hotel Uh, subsidized, very subsidized, very, very clean, beautiful, you know, workers' campaigns, um, medical facilities on site, sports facilities, etc. In fact, I was thinking about this because when I first started with IWS for the first 20 years, I actually got subsidized food and other benefits, etc. But the last 20 years, I didn't get anything. So, uh, which way are we going? The third thing you mentioned about um, minimum wages are wages. 
this, this is an area I tend not to get involved because I'm not, I'm not an expert, but um, it does crop up from time to time. Um, and um, it tends to be not so much the minimum wage in China, but the hours what people actually work, especially in the run-up to the Chinese New Year, when it's one of the busiest times and every retailer and brand in the world is screaming for delivery. Now, we've got a situation, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, as I say, I'm not an expert, where, of course, like us, on the run-up to Christmas, for example, it's an expensive time. So the, the, the Chinese worker, generally speaking, wants as much overtime as possible. Yeah? Wants as much overtime as possible. So as long as it's not forced, and I see no evidence of it being forced, it's voluntary with the companies I work with. And I remember working in, uh, in the uh, industry in Bradford when I first started with Hardy West. It was the same situation with the immigrants, the Indian and Pakistani immigrants working in the textile industry. They all wanted to do double shifts to earn money, to buy an house, to settle the family in the country. So, you know, apart from my observations, particularly with the companies I work with, I don't know how, how, how this... Um, how this is answered. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's something I'm not an expert on. Mm. Okay. No, but it's it's very interesting to hear your view. Thank you so much um, yep. for sharing that. And then earlier you explained that, yeah, many of your clients are from the wool knitting industry. So give us a little yep. bit an overview about the wool knitting industry. What are the challenges at the moment? Uh, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, that I always like to think some challenges or most challenges, we turn them into opportunities. Okay, um, right now, uh, of course, um, wool prices are just starting to bite. I mean, I'm so delighted that the wool growers uh, in Australia who's paid me for 40-odd years uh, are, are for the first time in 50 years making a profit, yeah? So I'm very happy about that. But we're just starting to see the wool prices bite. And also some issues with the availability of some types of wool. Um, so we, we, we've seen also, um, yeah, because most of our customers who make the decision are retailers and brands, yeah? And we actually seen a move towards blends, but not so much just on price, but because people are now looking for what they call performance, a really main functionality. So they want Merino plus something, yeah? Um, also, we're getting more demands from retailers and brands for different things. Um, of course, traceability is one of the key things. Um, you know, uh, the textile industry, including the world textile industry, starting to emulate the food industry. The food industry, you know, from paddock to plate. So we've got the wool industry, whatever you call it, you know, from fiber to fashion, sheep to shop, etc. So a lot of interest, a lot of demands on that. Um, uh, of course, chemical usage is, uh, is also very important for some retailers. You know, um, the Greenpeace detox scheme, uh, many, many retailers and brands have signed up for that. And also, more, is, of course, fly strike is becoming more of an issue. And the um, responsible wall standard. Um, so there's a lot of different things coming at us uh, which present challenges. Uh, the strategy of uh, all the companies I work for, of course, is try to listen to the customer and give the customer what they want. 
Yeah. If someone this, we even that. It's like going to a restaurant, someone pasta, someone bake, someone lamb. We try to put it on the uh, menu means in our collection. <laughs> of course, this, there's a cost as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's. you had a lot of interesting uh, answers there for me. So let's break them a little bit up. So what are like current trends for the wool knitting, knit, like wool knitted products would, at the moment? I would say the main, 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 main trends. Uh, um, the main trends at the moment, uh, of course, generally speaking, casualization. But uh, to be more specific, now we've seen the mega trend uh, been implemented where, you know, fashion is crossing into sports and sports crossing into fashion. You know, a few years ago, you know, when we were selling products for the fashion industry, you know, we had just turned about the latest colors, um, the Anfield, the drape, etc. Yeah. And um, now, now the fashion interest is interested in performance. In fact, we're one of the largest companies that work with in the world. We actually did a global survey. We got their representatives in London, New York, Tokyo, etc., to talk to our customers, which this company has more than 4,000. And the fashion customers start to come back. We want something plus. We want performance. We want functionality. Yeah? They didn't really know what they wanted apart from that specifically. It was up to come, us to come up with ideas. We also seen the sports outdoor, because of the crossover, asking about fashion effects, yeah, which we, we, with some of the companies we've created. So the crossover is very, very interesting. We've got the athleisure movement in the middle, or the sports look, as it's called in America. But um, so it pre present, it's a challenge, but it presents great opportunities for us. Of course, traceability, you know, as I mentioned before, The fiber, to, uh, uh, sorry, the farm to fashion. Twice, or three times a day, we're dealing with new new inquiries. Um, um, use of chemicals, yeah, chemical issues, uh, and this, that, and the other. So, as I say, there's a whole range of challenges. But I always say to companies I work with, you know, we got to uh, address these. But look at how we can move a step forward and take it as an opportunity. Uh, you know, like anything when it moves in the world. And uh, as you know, there, there's uh, a famous list somewhere where some of the greatest companies in the world started in a year when it was a tremendous uh, recession. You know, like Apple, like Microsoft, some, some people like that. So there's challenges, but we got the same as opportunities. <laughs> Well, I, I really enjoyed listening to all what you had to say. Thank you so much. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you and connect with you? Um, I would, well, first of all, <laughs> ideally I don't want them to telephone me because number of calls when I'm traveling, I wake up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. And... Not, not all textile people. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in China, and I got a call about uh, somebody coming to fix me dishwasher at 3.30 in the morning in China. But anyhow, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think by email or by uh, joining me on the LinkedIn site. Okay. And what is your website? I don't have a website. Ah, I, don't, okay. I didn't need a website. 
I built in Elizabeth. I didn't need a website because I think everybody knows me. Uh-huh. Been around too long. Been around too long. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good advertising for you then. Okay, well, thank you so much, you. Jimmy, for your time and sharing your knowledge with us. And yeah, good luck with your work-life balance and all the work that you do. Thank you, and uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, bye-bye. Bye. Well, I think after this interview, we all can understand why Jimmy Jackson does not need a website because... He and his knowledge just speak for himself. If you want to find out a little bit more about Jimmy, just head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 078. There you can find more details about his career and his expertise as well as his link to his LinkedIn page. So head on over to elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 078. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next week and bye for now.